Today, we are in part 19 of 20 of our summer series called Mountain Monologues, which means it's the penultimate message of the series. And I just simply say that word because my wife kind of makes fun of the fact that all the pastors say penultimate in the second to last message, but it simply means second to last. You can't use that word very often. So this is that opportunity, penultimate message in the, the series, which all we're doing is focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. It was a message that Jesus gave, and it was recorded by his disciple Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. And at one point in history, Jesus came up on a hill in Israel, and he talked to a large crowd. And of that large crowd, he specifically instructed his disciples. His disciples, he was asking them to live a life that is honoring to God. And why is this important to us still today? It's because Jesus also calls us to be his disciples. And so we've been looking at it and seeing what does God have to say to us every week during this series. And over the last couple weeks, as we've gotten to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus is helping us to understand how our lives are to look. When we are his disciples, our lives are supposed to look a certain way. And two weeks ago, Pastor Chris helped us understand that Jesus' disciples walked on a narrow path and on the wide road. And Jesus is going to lead us on that narrow path. Pastor Barry last week talked about how our lives must produce good fruit when we are in relationship with Jesus. That will be evident through our lives once we know him, once we're his disciple. And we're going to continue that theme today as we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. If you have your Mountain Monologues booklets, it's on page 53. It'll also be on the screen. We're going to read all three verses together right now because I think that the, the picture that Jesus paints with his words here makes the most sense when it's together. But since it's kind of a hard passage to understand, we're then going to just break it up and, and go verse by verse. So if you would uh, turn your attention to the screen or your phone or your Bible, it's Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one doing the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform do make many miracles? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, the ones working lawlessness. This, for me, is the hardest passage in the Sermon on the Mount for me to stomach, for me to digest. It's difficult to hear those words, and I think for me it's difficult to hear those words because I have friends and family who at one point in their lives seemed like they were following God. They said the right words and they even went to the right services, but now I look at their lives and they are neither walking on the narrow road or producing good fruit in their lives. For a long time, I've just hoped and prayed that they were prodigals. Jesus one time told this story where there was a father and his son left him. He took some of his inheritance, or his whole inheritance, and then he left and he wasted it all. Eventually he came back, and when he came back, that father left that porch and ran to his son and embraced him, which was a big deal. Jewish men didn't run for anything back then. So this was signifying how much he was so thankful that his son had returned. And then he was back. And we learned from that story that the son was always the son. Yeah, he wandered, but he was still the son. And the father was so thankful that he had returned. And so I pray that my friends and family who aren't following Jesus right now are prodigals. They're wayward children of God, and they're coming back someday. But I have to admit, after I read this, that while some of them are prodigals, some of them might be spiritual orphans. They might not know Jesus at all. 
They might have said the right words, maybe even done the right things, but they don't actually have a relationship with him. And that's why this is difficult to face. But we can face it with the help of God. So right now what I'd like to do is I'd like to simply pray. Pray for those in my friend circles and in my family who aren't following Jesus right now. Maybe they never were, or maybe they at one point said they were, but they're not right now. And I encourage you as I do that to pray as well, to lift up names specifically, name them to God and and ask God to work in their lives. And he is working to draw them into himself and to help those people to come back or to come to know him for the first time. I'm also gonna pray for you in here. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior yet, maybe you've said the right things, but you don't actually have a relationship with him yet. I'm gonna be praying for you. So right now, would you please simply pray with me? Dear God, I pray for my friends and family who at one point seem to know you but aren't following you. I pray for Nick and Crystal. I pray for Joe. I pray that you will draw them back to you or draw them into relationship with you for the first time. I pray that you help me and help all of us as we interact with those people in our lives to shine your light to those in our circles. I pray for the people that are being lifted up right now to you that are on the hearts and minds of so many right here. And I pray that you will continue your good work in their lives. Help break hardened hearts. Help draw people back to you. Help introduce yourself to the the children that you love, that you know by name, that you want in a relationship with you. I pray for anyone in here right now that doesn't know you yet, and I pray that you will work in their hearts as we speak together today, and that you will draw them into a relationship with you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So while this message seems at the onset to maybe be a little doom and gloomy because of what Jesus said, the more I read, the more I wrote, the more I thought about this message, the more excited I got because at the heart of this is Jesus telling us how to live with him being our Lord. And when we do that, lives change. When we do that, people will see Jesus in us and we can point them to the Savior. And that's exciting. So we're going to get into the practical nuts and bolts of how do we live with Jesus as our Lord. Let's go back to Matthew 7, 21 and read that once again. Jesus said this, not everyone saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one doing the will of my Father in heaven. This was challenging. I read it at first and I didn't really understand it. I actually wrote some of a message and then I took it out of the message and I left just the verse, the three verses rather. And it was Wednesday last week and I ended up just standing up and walking and praying and saying, God, please reveal to me, what are you talking about in here? How can someone say, Lord, Lord, but not actually mean it? What, What does that entail? And then God revealed a story to me from when I was younger that I thought, oh, that makes perfect sense. And then I felt God saying, well, share that. I thought, well, that's kind of embarrassing. (laughs) Don't want to share it, but I'll share it for you today. So a little embarrassing, but that's how it works sometimes. I was in my early 20s. I was dating a girl. Uh, Her name was Corinne. I'll share it because there's no way she's watching it. If she is, hello, Corinne. Hope you're well. Uh, And we were about six months in, and I thought, we'll do a cool celebration, six months. So I went and got flowers. Back then, I don't think this is right of me, but back then I would go to like Walmart or Giant Eagle and get like 12 roses or whatever. And you know, if you go to one of those places, there's like three of them that are just dead already. So you just, I took them out and then I replaced them with good ones. And so if you got six dead ones at some point, I'm sorry, that was me. Uh, So I got the flowers, I gave flowers to her that day. And then we went to the city, went to Pittsburgh, big city date. We went to the melting pot, which is like a sham. Like they charge a lot of money for you to cook your own food. I could do that at home. 
don't generally, but I could, and, and I could just buy the pot. Anyway, uh, and then we went to the Benedum. We saw Into the Woods, which was pretty good, and then dropped her off at night. We said we loved each other, and I, I, I left. I went home. I thought, man, this relationship is going really well. Like, just knocked that date out of the park. Like, it was awesome. Funny thing is, that was our last date. Uh, she... <laughs> She called me a little bit after that and was like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, why didn't you say that before that date? Because it became clear that she had already been thinking of this. And she was like, well, it sounded fun. So I, and I, well, I did have fun. And I look back and I go like, wow, she said the right things. It seemed like she was into the relationship, but she actually wasn't in it with her heart. She, she was there, but she actually wasn't participating in the relationship that I thought we were in. And we can do the same, same thing with Jesus. We can say the right things. Outwardly, we could look like we're following him, but if we haven't given our hearts over to him in that relationship that he asks us to be in, then he isn't yet our Lord. You see, Jesus doesn't ask simply for lip service. He asks for our whole lives. And until he has our whole lives, he's not yet our Lord, which is an important distinction because he asks us, to call him Lord and Savior. A lot of times we want the Savior part, rescue me from sin and death, but he also asks us to, to have him as our Lord. And the word Lord in the Bible sometimes is used as the word God, but the word Lord really translates to mean master and owner. So we are to make Jesus the owner and the master of our lives. What helped me to understand this is I was watching a show the other day called Downton Abbey, and I know my uh, credibility is just going boom, boom, but it, it did help me a little bit. It was, it was research. And as I was watching, and if you don't know, the show is about like aristocratic English wealthy homes about 100 years ago, and in one of those homes, you would have servants, and those servants would generally serve a lord. And what I found interesting is when those servants and that Lord would go collectively to a different house or a different region, they would be introduced not as their own names, but as the name of their Lord. And when they were referred to as something, they were referred to as the name of their Lord. And this was simply to signify who they belonged to, who they served. They were stamped with the name of their Lord. And the same premise is true for us with Jesus when we come into relationship with him and he is our Lord, he stamps our lives with his name. We become one with him. The Holy Spirit fills us up. We are a new creation. We are part of his family. And that should, that must be evident once he is our Lord. People must be able to tell, oh yeah, yeah, that's a servant of the most high God. That's a servant of the Lord Jesus. And when that happens, we really become a servant. We stop worrying about our needs, but we worry about the needs of God. In fact, when Jesus is Lord, we no longer ask, is this best for me? Instead, we must ask, what would my Lord have me do? The second question is the greater question. Lord, what would you have me do? You know everything. You know all of what's going on. You tell me and I will follow. That's what it means to have Jesus as our Lord. Watchman Nee, one of my favorite Christian writers, he was a Chinese pastor and now he's with the Lord. He wrote this book called Sit, Walk, Stand. And in that book, he talked about what it really looks like if we give our lives over to Jesus. When we're disciples, when he's our Lord, he said this, as Christians, our standard of living can never be right or wrong, but the cross. The principle of the cross is our principle of conduct. 
Our lives should be governed by the principle of the cross whence Jesus is our Lord and not the principle of right or wrong. What does that mean? Well, the principle of the cross is the principle that Jesus came and he died and he rose again for you and me when we didn't deserve it. When it wasn't the right thing for the God of the universe to do, he's the one with all the power and authority. He could just wipe us out. But instead, he didn't do the, the right thing by our standards. He did the thing by his standards, by the principle of the cross. It'd be kind of like if you had an ant farm, and that ant farm had a bunch of ants that, well, pretend you created those ants. That'd be weird, but pretend. You had this ant farm, you created those ants, and they started rebelling against each other and against you. Your, your thought, my thought, definitely would not be, let me become an ant. Let me just ant man it up and go in there and then let them kill me, and then I'll rise again so that they could have eternal life. No, I would take that ant farm and I would throw it out because it's disgusting, and why do you have ants in your house on purpose? But that's what... That's what Jesus did for us. He came down and he came and died and rose again for you and me. He didn't have to. That's the principle of the cross and that's what we are to live by. Watchman Nee in that book gave an example. He said he once knew this Christian brother who lived in South China. This brother owned a rice farm and at one point there was a drought in the land and so he hooked up a water wheel to a stream and then powered it by a treadmill, which is pretty cool. And then he would bring water up from that stream. He would take the water and then he would water his fields, just like that's what you do. You pick up the water and you, that's exactly. I, I should leave the farming examples of Pastor Barry because I actually have no idea. Uh, buckets maybe, I don't know. Anyway, so he did that and his neighbor who had two farms found out. So he started to come over breaking in and stealing the water for his own farms. And he kept doing this. The Christian brother started to think, well, I'll turn the other cheek. I'll be forgiving. I'll be kind. But eventually it got to him. And he went to a friend of his who was a Christian and was like, what this guy's doing is not right. It's wrong. I must tell him it's not right. And his Christian brother responded this way. If we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. If we only do what is right, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. So that Christian went away and he thought about it and he made a decision. Every morning he woke up, got on that treadmill, brought the water up, and he watered his neighbor's fields first. Then in the afternoon, he got on that treadmill, he brought up water, and he watered his field. And he kept on doing that until eventually his neighbor came to him. Now, we don't have that conversation recorded, but I'm sure that neighbor was like, what are you doing? Like, I just stole from you, and this is your response? Well, through conversations, that person found out about Jesus and came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Christian brother was able to point and say, Jesus is my Lord. And it wasn't just by his words. It was by his actions, and this person saw that. And this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7, 21. If Jesus is our Lord, it must not just be lip service. We must give our lives over to him. Jesus continued in Matthew 7, 22. He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform, do make many miracles? When Jesus used the term in that day, he did it for a purpose. The phrase in that day or on that day or sometimes in the Old Testament, in that day of Yahweh, Yahweh meaning the name of God, what that referred to was the day of judgment. So Jesus is saying on the day of judgment, when you're before the judge, and Jesus is putting himself in the judgment seat right here, which is profound in itself. 
mind you. Some people will say that Jesus was only a good moral teacher, but this is one of those times where he claims to be God, and no moral good teacher just goes around claiming to be God. One time I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness, and she said, well, there's nowhere in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, where Jesus actually claims to be God, and I said, well, that's just untrue. You're wrong, and I gave, in love, you're wrong, and I gave some of these examples. You see, what Jesus did, and, and Biblical scholars call it um, messianic claims. He would make these claims that the Jewish people understood as only God would make that claim. Like, for instance, he would forgive sins. They would say, only God can forgive sins. And in this situation, he put himself in the judgment seat of God and said, if you come to me with your good works but don't know me, that doesn't grant you access into eternal life. This is hard to hear. He even went so far as to say that some will say, I prophesied in your name, I've cast out demons, I've done miracles, but if they don't know Jesus, then it doesn't give and grant that relationship with Jesus. It doesn't give and grant that access into heaven. It's not able to because we can't do it on our own. And those things, prophesying, casting out demons and doing miracles, were considered and still are some of the heights in which Christians could reach. And Jesus said, that's still not enough because it's not about us. It's not about what we can do or what we have done. It's about what Jesus did do on the cross and then what he did rising from the dead. And this leads us to our take-home point. It's the one point that this message is focusing on. And it's this, our good works do not grant us access into heaven. Our good works show that we believe in Jesus, but our good works don't grant us access into God's kingdom. Pastor Chris, a couple weeks ago, told us that Christians are the only people, the only religion that can't make themselves Christians. We can't just do enough to become a Christian. We're the only religion that Jesus has to do it for us. His death and his resurrection made a way where there was no way. The Apostle Paul told this to the church in Rome. He gave an idea of what it is like to enter into this relationship with Jesus. He said, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Nothing we can do on our own can bring us into this relationship with Jesus. Our actions won't qualify us for heaven, and our actions won't disqualify us for, from heaven. It's what Jesus did that makes it possible. One time I was in a tow truck with a tow truck driver, and I was talking to him, and I just brought up, hey, do you go to church anywhere? And he said, no. And I said, why? And he said, well, I realized at one point that I'm just not good enough to get into heaven. Just not good enough to please Jesus, to please God. And I said, well, there's good news well, first of all, you're right, you aren't, and I'm not either. We're, none of us are good enough to do that. But the good news is that Jesus died because of that, that he was aware of that. It wasn't that he came and died and rose again and then was like, all right, now, if you're good enough, you'll receive this gift. He did it while we were still sinners, aware that we were enemies of God, so that we could come into relationship with him as we were designed to do. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. 
For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Jesus did the work for us on the cross. At no point can we match that work or outdo it on our own. What does Jesus ask us to do? He asks us to admit that we're not good enough, that we're all sinners, all of us, and that we need him as our Lord and our Savior. And when we do that, he truly comes into, or we come into a relationship with him. We get to be a part of his family. Thankfully, that tow truck driver, after we talked about it, did trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And and we were able to celebrate together that day that he came into the family of God. Again, it's not about our works. It's about who he is. And that's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7, 22. Let's look at Matthew 7, 23 again. It says this, And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, the ones working lawlessness. Once again, Jesus was putting himself in the position as judge. And he was even saying he was the one that was going to declare the verdict. And once again, he was letting us know that that, all of that is in his hands and not our hands. He's also helping us to understand that he isn't breaking a relationship when he's doing this. He's simply declaring that there never was one in the first place. He's saying you're still living in your lawlessness. That Greek word for lawlessness can be translated to mean wickedness or iniquity. And he's saying you're still living in your wickedness. You're not living in the freedom that I'm offering to you. And how do we stop working in our wickedness? Again, it's not by trying more. It's by trusting in him, by laying it all down in his feet and asking him to take all of our sins away and let us live a life with him. To remove our sins, we don't work at it. We, we go to him and we say, Please give me that gift, and he will. And when we do that, we truly become his disciple. We get to follow him with him as our Lord. And that's what he called us to do. And that's what the early disciples did as well. And the term disciple was simply just a term that the Jewish people used to mean someone that wanted to be like their rabbi, someone that was chosen to go and follow and emulate their rabbi, to live like them in every way. And this is what God is calling us to do as well, to live like our rabbi, Jesus, to live like our Lord and our master. And how do we do that? Well, Paul said this to the church in Philippi, gave a good understanding of what it's like to live like Jesus. He said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That description defines what it's like to be governed by the principle of the cross. And that description is what those early disciples lived like. They wanted to be like Jesus. They lived like Jesus. And so the ones that were still around after Jesus came back from the dead and then ascended into heaven, went out and started the movement of the church. And this movement rapidly grew. In fact, what started with a small group soon became 7,500 people by the end of the first century, around 99 AD. It was a humongous growth. 
And then by 312 AD, Roman historians say that Christians numbered about half of the Roman Empire, which was in the millions. And that movement is still growing today. In fact, I was recently talking to my friend who has been in China as a missionary for almost 30 years. He's back here in the States right now, and he said the number of people in China that are Christians are about 200 million. And that's still a country that literally kicked out my friend for simply having a worship service in his home. They still don't want Christians around, but the movement is still growing. Why? Because Jesus is still king, because he is still Lord. In 2016, the writer and pastor who is now with the Lord, his name is Tim Keller, said this in his book, Making Sense of God. He said, last Sunday, in each of the nations of Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and South Africa, there were more Anglicans in church than there were Anglicans and Episcopalians in all of Britain and the United States combined. There are currently over 2.3 billion Christians in the world right now. I used to think that Christianity was dying out, but there's nothing further from the truth. In fact, tens of thousands of people are coming to know Jesus every single day in China and in the Middle East. It's still in America as well. In fact, Pastor Chris and I have been given the opportunity over the last several months to go on Zoom and, and speak to people in Pakistan. Why? Because they're desiring to hear the word of God and hear about Jesus Christ. The word of God is still moving because people are still giving their lives over to Jesus as Lord and he's still doing what he does, which is to bring victory forth from the lives of those who are truly his disciples who are serving him as Lord. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about how because Jesus caused the victory over sin and death with his death and resurrection, we now get to live in that victory. It says that we are more than conquerors because of what Jesus did. And because of that, we don't have to go and work for victory. We get to work from victory. Because a victory is already belonging to Jesus and it belongs to us when we are in relationship with him as well. So what do we do? How do we live this out in our lives? How do we join this movement that is still rapidly growing? Well, it starts with submission. Even though in our world, submission isn't celebrated, we simply do it anyway. We look for opportunities to serve, to submit, to sacrifice for God and for others in such a way with our time, talent, treasure, and touch that people will take notice just like Watchman Nee's friend. They'll take notice and say, what are you doing? And we'll be able in those moments to point to Jesus. And in that way, the lost in our lives will see Jesus through us. Over the last several months here at New Life, we've been talking about the ones. A one is a person in your life that God has brought in your path that doesn't know Jesus. But God wants to use us to show them his son. And one of the ways we can do that is by living in the principle of the cross, not the principle of right and wrong, in such a way that when we sacrifice, it's surprising to people. And they have to go, what are you doing? Rachel, my wife, did this a couple months ago, and I'm so proud of her, I wanted to, to share it. I was messaging with some people from a gaming group in Pittsburgh that I see every few months, and I found out that a couple had a baby. And I told my wife, hey, this couple just had a baby, we should make them some dinner. And she looked at me and said, we? What do you mean? 
what do you, what do you mean we? And I said, well, maybe you make him dinner. And she did because she's so kind. She had never met this couple. She still hasn't met this couple, but they're ones in my life. They don't know Jesus. I've only met them at this, at, at that point, I only had met them a couple times. But she made a meal with the sides and the dessert, all of that, and I brought it out to Pittsburgh, and they were shocked. They were shocked because my wife was about to have a baby. In fact, she would have Kai three days after this. And they were like, your wife is how pregnant? And she made this. I was like, yeah, we just wanted to, to show some love to you. We wanted to care for you in this way. You guys had a baby. And it was great. We got to show the love of Jesus in that way through sacrifice. And that wasn't the right thing for Rachel to do. Mind you, she would have had every right to sit back and put her feet up and say, I'm not making food for someone I haven't met before. The world would say, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But if she's governed by the principle of the cross, that's the kind of stuff you do. In high school, I got to experience sacrifice for, from someone at a church I went to while I was in youth group. One day, my youth pastor told me he really wanted me to go to a retreat they were going on. But at the time, I wasn't a Christian, so I didn't really want to go away for a weekend and hear about Jesus, especially because my brother and my friend weren't going to go. But my youth pastor kept inviting me, and eventually he said, well, someone paid for you. It's paid for, so why don't you just come? It's going to be fun. Why don't you just come along with us? And my dad was for that, didn't have to feed me for the weekend. And so we, we, we said yes, and, and I ended up going. And on that retreat, I was away from distraction. And I was ready, and I heard the good news of Jesus, and I trusted in him as Lord and Savior that week, and I gave my life over. And I'm so thankful for that person who sacrificed in such a way to give me the opportunity to go on a retreat. That's the stuff we're talking about. Watchman Nee, in that same book, Sit, Walk, Stand, talked about another story of someone sacrificing in such a way that brought someone's attention on a Jesus. See, there was this woman, she was a Christian woman, and she awoke one day when a thief had broken into her house. Now, I don't know what you would do if a thief broke in your house. I feel like I would try to grab like the heaviest thing right now in my life, actually. I think, oh man, it's the kids coming in again. I kind of hope it's a thief, uh, so I don't have to put another Band-Aid on. But uh, it's... Probably shouldn't say that. Uh, But uh, in this story, this is what happens. She was awoken. She said this. In her simple but practical faith in the Lord, she cooked the man a meal and then offered him her keys. He was shamed by her action and God spoke to him. Through her testimony, that man is a brother in Christ today. When we serve, when we submit, and we sacrifice in such a way like this, where you make it a meal for someone that's robbing your house in such a way to show them Jesus, people will take notice. They'll say, what are you doing? And when that happens, man, the church will continue to thrive and grow as it has been, because in those moments, Jesus is truly our Lord. And that's what Jesus has called us to to live like, with him as our Lord, with us as his disciple. And when we do that, the message will continue to spread. People will continue to see Jesus in us. And I know that we talked about 2.3 billion people being Christians, but there's 8 billion people in the world right now. So we have work to do. So let's ask God to reveal situations in our lives at work tomorrow or with our family tonight or hanging out with friends this week that God will prompt us to say, serve, submit, sacrifice, Live in the principle of the cross, not the principle of right or wrong. And when we do that, people will see Jesus in us. And we can point them to the Savior and Lord of the world. And we can do that through today's next step, which says, I will submit myself to God's authority each morning this week. I'd encourage you to get on your knees and say, God, take my life every morning. Take it, be in charge. 
What would you have me do today? Not what I want to do, but what would you have me do? And if that's completely different than my plans, give me the strength, the courage, the ability to do that. And as we follow that, man, people will see Jesus and we'll be at a point to him. And then those lives will change. And let's pray that those people in our lives that don't know Jesus will see him and be called to him, whether called back or to him for the first time. If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you'd like to, you want to enter into that relationship with the God of the universe that allows you to live every day with the presence of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and then forever you get to be with God. If you want to do that, we say here, it's as simple as A, B, and C. A, it starts by admitting. We simply admit who we are and who he is. We admit that we're sinners and we're not perfect. We don't have it all together that we mess up and that he is Savior. He is Lord. And then we believe, we believe in Jesus as that master owner, God, and our rescuer from sin and death, our savior. And we confess our sins. We ask him to forgive us. And then we commit to living our life, not alone, but through God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, who is God. We live with him every single day. So right now we're gonna pray. And I'd encourage you, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and savior today, make that happen. Ask him to come into your life. I wanna pray as if I were you and I encourage you to, to use your own words and your own heart and mind, but to speak to the God who knows you by name, who loves you, who created you and wants to be in this relationship with you. And then we're gonna pray. After that, we're gonna pray for anyone in here that hasn't yet sacrificed everything to Jesus as Lord. Maybe there's a couple things you're holding back, but in this moment, let's bring them to God and say, all right, you can have that as well. You can have my family, you can have my job, you can have my security, you can have my friendships, you can have it. You be the Lord, you be the owner, you tell me what to do. You govern my life and not me governing my life, you know better. And then we're gonna, we're gonna talk a little bit more after that, but let's pray. Uh, dear God, I thank you so much for being here in the room right now. God, thank you for your spirit, your presence, for continuing to work. I pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you yet as Lord and Savior that as they pray, that you will hear us as we say this prayer. Dear God, I believe you are the one true God, and that Jesus is your one and only perfect son, that he died and rose again because I'm a sinner. Forgive me of those sins. Bring me into your family and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And dear God, for all of us, if there's something we're holding back right now, God, take it. Take, take the control we want over our health. Take the control we want over our finances. Take the control we want over our family and our relationships. You, God, our Lord, own it. Be our master. Guide us down that narrow path. Produce the fruit that you produce in our lives and help us to be your disciple and your servant with you as our Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.